0: Father, you know us. You know us completely. You know our weakness. You know my weakness. You know our need. And though we often don't know what we need, you do. And we remind ourselves even now that you are a good father who delights, loves to give good gifts to your children. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, through my words. Take what is weak and use it. You are a God who does that, who has continually chosen to do that throughout history, to take weak things and to bring glory to yourself through it. Lord, take us as weak people and use us, speak to us, encourage us, grow us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen what does it mean to become, to be a a Christian? What is conversion? That's what we're we're looking at in this this series, stories of of change. Two weeks ago, Ian Jones opened up our series and talked about our our need, the need for every man and woman to be born again. He walked us into Ephesians 2 and this great spiritual truth that without Jesus, every one of us is dead, spiritually dead. We are physically alive we are able to eat speak sleep and yet we are spiritually dead we are unable to to do what God has called us to do we're unable to please him we're unable to fulfill our humanity what we were designed for made for called to unless we are changed unless we are born again as Jesus teaches in in John 3 there has to be a change so significant in each one of us that the Bible can say it's resurrection. Otherwise we're dead, we stand as we were born, enemies of God. But what if I'm a good person? What what if I'm a good person? More than that, what if I'm a religious person? Do I really need to change? Do I really need to be saved? This story, Saul's story, would say yes. He would say yeah. You could be the most religious person in all the world, and yet you need Jesus. So we're going to look at this story of change, this man Saul, and we're going to look at what he was saved from, what he was saved by, Well, he was saved to, and then what he was saved for. Saved from, saved by, saved to, and saved for. Okay, so they're the four points. It's going to turn into five points. I might drop a point at the end. We'll see how time's going. So, Sarah's just read to us this story of a man called Saul, a man who is, we're told, from a place called Tarsus. Okay, so geography lesson. Think of the Mediterranean. Okay, so Israel... Jerusalem, the, the events of the, the New Testament take place on the Far East, okay, so if you, this is the map, okay, the Mediterranean over here, Israel's over here, Tarsus is about 100 miles so just round the top corner, so up the coast and just beginning to go round. that's where Saul was born and then he moved at some point during his childhood to Jerusalem. Who is he? Because if, really, if we're going to see change, we need to do the, the old uh, DIY SOS thing. The before and after. You know the shot they show at the end of the show? This is what it was like before. And now after we've done all the work, here's, here's the comparison. Or, you know, the adverts for the gym. You know, here's Sally. Here's what she was like three months ago. And now she's been coming to our gym. And now this is what she looks like. The before and after. Who was Saul Before. What was he saved from? Well, he was saved from a superior CV. Do you know what a CV is? A curriculum vitae. I think is Latin, probably. Any teachers out there? Nick? Yeah. Curriculum vitae. Okay, it's been a while since I filled one out, and it wasn't very good then. Okay, curriculum vitae. A, a list of achievements and accomplishments. Here's Sauls. Curriculum vitae. I'm going to read it to you. This is how he reflects on who he was. Okay? In his own words, also in the Bible, in the book of Philippians. Let me read to you his CV. He says, I myself have reasons for such confidence confidence in, in who I was. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's his own words about who he was. If this was a set of GCSE results on Paul's CV, it's all A-stars, or nines, I think is what they call them now. Okay, still doesn't make sense to me. But it is a perfect, spotless, faultless record. He's got faultless credentials by birth. He is one of God's people, born into the Jewish nation. He can trace back his descendants to, to the Benjamites. He says, "I'm part of that tribe, one of the 12 original tribes. And my parents did everything right. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I followed the rituals. I mean, I'm not sure he had much to do with it. I don't think he would have voted for it on the eighth day of his life, circumcision. And yet, his credentials are, are perfect. And he's got faultless credentials when it comes to religious progress. He tells us elsewhere that he stood under a guy called, let me get this right, Gamaliel. Okay, like the foremost religious expert of the day. And Paul was chosen, selected to to learn under him. He says, I was a Pharisee. I was a religious leader, respected, honoured. People looked at my life and, and said, yes, this guy is a godly man. And he even says, I've got faultless credentials based on religious performance. In terms of righteousness based on the law. In all the things that God has told The Jewish people about how they should live, not just the Ten Commandments. Okay, anybody can do those. I mean, they can't, but you know. Every single minute little law about what to wear, about what to eat, about what to do when you mess up, about what days you can and can't go to the temple, everything. He says faultless. His track record is supreme this is a man who walked down the street and everybody, left or right, says, good man, the best of men. And he said, here's who I was when it comes to relationship to God. He says, as for for zeal, how how into religion was Paul? How into pleasing God was Paul? Well, when this little group arose who said, there's a man come from God who is God, who has transformed and fulfilled the Jewish religion. And that started to get traction, Christianity. Paul went to the very nth degree of saying, there's no way we're doing this. Not a chance. I am going to destroy it. Wipe it out. These stories that we're looking at are from the the book of Acts. A man called Luke, who's a doctor, who's an early Christian, recording the events that took place after Jesus had died, was resurrected. He he did the life of Jesus in part one, and then the book of Acts is the, the next part of the story. He gives us some information about Saul. So we've had Saul's CV, his own recollection on who he was but then Luke gives us a couple of insights, a couple of sharp pointers to give us a clue about this man, about what he was like. So let me read to you from, from Acts chapter 7. A guy called Stephen had been arrested because he'd been preaching about Jesus. And he faces a mob and he refuses to back down. And they get to the point, these religious leaders, these holy men, where they stoned him. The first time we meet Saul of Tarsus is at the end of Acts chapter 7. At this, after what Stephen has said, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of the voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first thing we learn about this guy, Saul. He's there as these religious lose, uh, these religious losers religious leaders lose their heads because somebody is standing up and telling them that Jesus is God and that he was resurrected and that he's now in heaven as they lose their heads Saul's there approving that's what we read in the first verse of chapter eight as they stone this man Stephen Saul approved of their killing him and that seems to be the spark because he's just a young man watching on, but as he sees this, he says, yes, this is what I'm here for. And so we read on, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, Samaria. godly men buried deep and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Saul began to destroy the church. These people who follow Jesus, who talk about Jesus, who claim that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, that he died and rose again, Paul sets out to destroy them. That's how religious this man Paul, Saul. Right, I'm going to apologize now. I'm going to consistently, Saul changes his name to Paul in the Bible. I'm going to mess it up repeatedly throughout this sermon. So I'm going to try Saul, but if I say Paul, I'm just talking about the same guy. Saul is Mr. Religion. And he lives his life because he thinks that, thinks that this is how you please God. And he's all in. One writer says this about, about Paul. He was a zealous, fastidious Jew trying to earn his salvation. Maybe we hear of somebody like that in our context and we think, well, they are real outsiders. When we think about religious extremists or maybe the word fundamentalists, we can say, yeah, they are lost people. But if we were Jews, reading this, people at the time, nobody would have had Paul anywhere near their list of people that needed saving. Now he'd been the list of their people going, no, he's fine. In fact, he's better than fine. God must love this man. He's better than all of us. And yet, the Bible says this man Saul needed saving. His religious fervor, his goodness had left him lost and down. And as we start out this afternoon, I guess I want to take pause and just say, if you've grown up in church, there's a danger that you think being religious leaves you right with God. Maybe you've grown up in this church or another church like you, and you know all the right things to say, and you know all the good things to do, and you can act the part Saul needed saving from his religion. Maybe, maybe some of us do too. He's saved from a superior CV, but he's saved by meeting Jesus. That's our second point. Let's jump into our passage. Back to Acts 9, maybe, if you've shut your Bible, open it up again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, it's what these people were becoming known as, these Christians, before they were even called Christians, followers of the way. If he found any of them, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And he sets out for Damascus. This is over a 200-mile journey, sort of north and east from Jerusalem. And he sets out on this, this journey. And Luke tells us, start of verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey. This long journey. I don't know what you're like if you go on a, a long journey. When you get onto that last stretch, maybe it's a journey you take a while, you know there's a point. You get to a, maybe it's one service station or one roundabout, get off one motorway. And you know that you're on the, the final stretch of the journey, and your mind begins to, to think. About what you're going to do once you, you arrive at your destination. Whether it's that cup of tea. Or what you're going to say to that person that you're going to, to visit. Or, or maybe it's a work thing and you, you, know, you hit that final stretch and you're thinking then how am I going to do this job? How am I going to start my presentation? What do I want to get across in this interview? That, that final stretch of mind goes towards your destination. And maybe that's what I think Saul probably does. I think Luke's saying to us, Hey, he's now focusing in. He's had this journey, but he's now thinking about these followers of the way, these followers of Jesus, and he's thinking about what he's going to do. How he's going to round them up, how he's going to take them back, wondering how many there are going to be. And then it all goes nuts. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This glorious, blinding light. Paul is knocked down to the ground. Actually, some of the other accounts as Paul retells this. We hear this account twice more in the book of Acts. Paul retelling what happened. But all told that the other people are knocked to the ground also. The men that are with him. And this voice speaks. Now, the men around don't hear the voice, but Saul does. And the voice marks him out. Saul, Saul, twice. Emphasizing the, the very personal, I know who you are. Why do you persecute me? Who is it? And that's Paul's question, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus' question... Okay, clue, it's Jesus, is why do you persecute me? Paul says, Saul says, who are you? Lord, Lord, who are you? And this interaction between this person and Saul that is both personal and revealing and the other people around don't hear the wording; they don't hear what's being said. It's a direct to this man's soul. The lights in the Bible; when the light shines like this, it's an indicator that this is a a God thing. It's a Jesus thing. If we're reading the Bible through, we might think of Isaiah chapter nine, where God promises about what He's going to do for His people. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then we think of the words of Jesus. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in the middle of this light is a man. Now Paul doesn't see it. Notice, he's got his eyes closed. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And yet, even the men around can't see him, and yet he knows that there's somebody there speaking to him. Speaking to him about how he is living his life. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We see for all Saul's religious fervor, He's never seen it as personal. He doesn't believe that this man Jesus is who he said he was. Because Paul, Saul, would have been around at the time of Jesus' events. He was living. He would have heard. He would have heard the uprising. He would have known that Jesus was crucified. And then he heard the claims about his resurrection but but didn't believe him. but he sees the threat to his own religion and therefore to himself and his own position. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What is it that changes Saul? Is it just some weird, slightly mystical event that changes his life Convicts him that there's probably a better way to live. I don't think so. I think it's the truth that Jesus is alive. You see, the Christian faith lives or dies on the facts or the falsehoods of the resurrection of Jesus. And Saul could give it no room if Jesus was just a a fake. If there was no resurrection, but suddenly as he hears this voice, as the voice, the man says and connects what Paul is doing with the very real person of Jesus, if Jesus is alive, it changes everything for Saul. But then he meets him, alive and aware of what Saul has been doing. And more than that, he's not just aware of it. He says, it's against me. Why do you persecute me? How amazing is it that this is how Jesus deals with Saul? The Bible tells the story of Jesus saving for himself for people at the expense, at the cost of his own life. His people are his family. And this man has been spending every ounce of effort to destroy them, to wipe them out. Men and women. You see that as we read in verse 2. This is Utter, seeking utter devastation, destruction of the way of Christians. How would you respond? How would we expect Jesus to respond when somebody treats the ones that he loves, the ones that he died for, like that? How would you respond if somebody treated the people that you love, your family, the way that Saul has treated Christians? And yet, and yet, Jesus loves him. Surely that can be the only thing we can draw from this, is that Jesus must love this man, Saul. The persecutor of his people. Instead of wrath, we get a reaching out. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He interacts with Saul. He calls him. He shakes him. He stops him from going into Damascus. And Saul meets Jesus. Go into the city. You will be told what you must do. And I want to ask this question at this point, and, and, and again in the next couple of points, Is this just true about Saul or is it for everyone? Is this true for all Christians? Should we expect this for everybody? This great light that comes from the sky. For Jesus to appear in person. Well, I think part of the clue to that is to say... That's not what Saul expected. As he went out from here, as he begins this new life that we're going to look at together in the next couple of points, he doesn't go around saying, you've got to meet Jesus, keep looking up. He goes out and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. And so we can say from that, this is not the ordinary, this is not typical, it's atypical. Saul himself doesn't expect this to be the norm. And yet, every Christian, here and across the world, knows what it is to hear the voice of Jesus. For God, for Jesus to speak to them through his word and through his people. And whether that's they've read it, or whether they've heard somebody share about Jesus with them, Every Christian knows the reality of the Word of God, the person of Jesus, becoming real to them. Knows the certainty that Jesus died and rose again to save them. Every Christian knows the experience of the Word of God taking root with certainty in their hearts and their minds and their soul and their will. And if you've never known that, then we've got to ask the Christian the question, Are you a Christian? as the Bible describes it. Saul is saved by meeting Jesus. But what is he saved to? The story goes on and this man, Ananias, gets brought in into the story. We're not going to focus too much upon him. and We could do a whole sermon on Ananias and his fears and how God uses him. But Saul sends, uh, Jesus sends Saul on into the city, into Damascus. And then he calls this man, Ananias, to come and to speak to Saul. To instruct him. So we could read on. In ten, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him to bring a vision, and to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered, "Go to the house of Judas on straight street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul." And Ananias knows all about Saul. I'm sure every Christian, every follower of the way, knew about Saul because he was their great enemy. They all lived in fear that one day Saul would knock on their door, take them away. But what God uses Ananias for, despite his fear, is to tell Saul what he has been saved to. God is going to use Saul to make his own name, God's name, the name of Jesus. Known throughout the world. Look down at verse 15. After Ananias has got his fears off his chest, God surely not. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Maybe we can think that God is like us when we play Monopoly. Okay? Hands up if you've played Monopoly. You aware of the game generally. Hopefully. Okay? If you play Monopoly, I, mean, I always go for the, the light blue streets. Okay? So if we ever play, that's, that's the, the tactic. I think it's the best way to go. But when you're playing, if somebody else has got two streets, two properties of a certain set, and you land on the third one, you can buy that purely to stop somebody else okay so somebody else has got two of the reds you land on the third one you have got to buy it just to stop them you don't want them getting it and maybe we can look at this and go well why did God save Saul why him is this God on the defensive he's just taken out the the main piece of the enemy's attack just looking after his own I think that's how I think I think, you know, if I was trying to protect the church now, who would I, you know, convert basically just to get them off the church's plate, to make it easier? That's not what God's doing here. He's not playing Monopoly. Saul is not just an incidental, accidental piece. God has got a plan for this man Saul, the great enemy of the church, the one who has caused great suffering, Amongst the people of God, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. God has got a plan for Saul. One that nobody else would ever have come up with. One that he was completely ill-deserving of. One that would take his name to make him one of the most... I guess, one of the most famous men in history. the man who ends up writing a good chunk, more than half of the New Testament. A man who's going to take the church from being basically a, a one-city place to being a group of people that live throughout the known world. God has got a plan for Saul's life and he has called him, saved him to, to serve Yes, some of us will have seen the, the latest Avengers film in the last few weeks. I'm not going to give any spoilers. Okay, I think I'll get sued if I do. They're quite precious about it. But there's a moment when all the heroes, the superheroes, are, are, are joined together to fight the enemy, and they all have a role. So too, every person saved by God, saved to serve. And their primary act of service is to be a witness to Jesus. To take on the role of people who say, let me tell you about Jesus. We live in a society where people are struggling for meaning. Where depression and mental health in our society is at an all-time high. In 2017, there were 5,821 suicides in our country. And what we tell our kids as they grow up in schools is life is meaningless. There's no design. There's no ultimate purpose. You decide what is right and wrong. And then we're surprised when kids are, find life meaningless when we tell them that there is no ultimate meaning. What God says here about Saul is that God has a plan, a calling on the lives of all those that He saves. For each of us here. If we've trusted in Christ, if we've heard the word of Jesus to us <coughs> excuse me, through his word. Has taken root in our hearts. God has a plan for us. No matter how much we might seem insignificant to ourselves or to other people, God has a plan, a purpose for each one of us. That's what he says to our, Ananias. I know you're scared, but I've got a plan for this man. And it's a grand and glorious plan. Paul's going to be a witness for Jesus to those that are not born into the Jewish faith, who've grown up knowing nothing about the God of Israel. Pagans. And he's going to go to them and to their kings. If you continue through the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. Paul ends up standing before the most powerful men of his day and saying, let me tell you about Jesus. But let's ask that question again. Is this just for Saul? Or is it for everyone? Because this grand plan that ha- God has for Saul, doesn't seem to be true for me. Maybe it doesn't seem to be true for you. And yet we're all given the task, aren't we? Of being witnesses to Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world, we already mentioned that, calls his followers the light of the world. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're all called to become more like Christ and to show to the world God's plan, God's redemption plan. We're to say to the world, God has come to save the world. And let me show you a little bit of what it means and what it looks like for somebody to be saved. Because we are to be different. Set apart, holy. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to be kind, to, to turn the other cheek when people exploit us. We're called to care for those who cannot care for themselves. We're called to do the most countercultural of all things to honor our parents. And that's the hardest, hardest command there is, isn't it, for a child? even for grown-up children sometimes. We're called to be different to the culture. What the culture says is good. If God says it isn't, we're to say, no, we trust God, not, not the world. And we're to show that God is good and God has a plan and that God's plan is better and that we'll trust it even when it's hard. We are all called to live for, to show and to speak of Jesus, even if our audience won't be as big as Saul's. Even if our audience is as small as our neighbours and our family, our work colleagues, the guys that I'm in school with. We're all called, we're all placed. So saved to serve, but also saved to suffer. Look at verse 60. This is God still speaking to Ananias before Ananias goes to, to Saul. I will show him, Saul... How much he must suffer for my name. Being changed by Jesus means that we are promised a glorious future. And we come to know the God of this world, the God who made us. But being on Team Jesus is not a walk in the park. Because when we are united to Jesus by faith, when we are saved and changed, we're called to join him in his ministry, to bear some of the same response that Jesus received. We are called to suffer. And we have this, or this difficulty... Because the gospel is good news. Jesus has called us to know him, to a life of joy. But not necessarily a life of comfort. A life of meaning. But not a life that is, is still hard. And maybe even harder than if we didn't follow Jesus. A life that's going to hurt. That's what God says about Saul. And if you read through the life of Saul in the book of Acts, you'll see that that is borne out. In fact, you've only got to turn a couple of pages to find Paul having to escape from the city of Damascus. Because people are coming after him. People hate the fact that he's saying, Jesus is the only way. You need to know Jesus. Let's ask that question again. Is this just for Saul? Is it that Saul's called to suffer? Saved to suffer? Or is it for everyone? Well, Paul himself writes in 2 Timothy 3, In fact, everyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's for everyone. If you stand with Jesus, then you're going to catch some of the flack that comes his way. When Jesus came to this world, God become man As he taught the truth, even as he saved people, as he miraculously worked healings, some people loved Some people recognized God's goodness and others hated Well, in the same way, if we stand with Jesus, people will hate us. And some of us have experienced that already. Some of us may even have experienced that this week. Some of us may not. we must be prepared. This is for everyone. When you change teams, your old team isn't going to like it. If you go from being a Wednesday fan to a United fan, don't expect to get a good reception from Wednesday fans. And it's much more serious and important than that. But listen to what Paul says. At the start, we read Paul's CV from Philippians. Let me read, continue reading after he lays out his former life, who he was, who he was saved from. Let me keep reading. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. When Paul was shipwrecked, when Paul was beaten to an inch of his life, when he was attempted to be stoned, when people rejected him. Even in the midst of all that, he says it's worth it, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, to be loved by Christ to know that He loved you before you ever loved Him, because that's the thing about Saul's story: there is not one inch of Saul as he walks this road to Damascus that is asking a question. Well, I wonder if there's something in Christianity. There's not one part of him thinks, "Ah, oh, but there is something good in Jesus." No, he's hating Jesus. And yet Jesus tracks him down, knocks him off his horse and changes his life completely. To know a love like that, though you have rejected him, though you have failed him, though you have rejected him in your badness or in your goodness. To know that love and to know that you will be loved forever without fail. Without failing, Paul would say to us, Saul, suffering is worth it. To be on team Jesus, to know him, it's worth even the hardest persecution. It's been the testimony of the church. Through 2,000 years, men and women have said it is worth giving up everything. For the sake of knowing him. Saved to serve. Saved to suffer. But one final point. Saved for. What is all this about? Saved for. Not, not primarily about Saul. It's primarily about Jesus. Let me read to you something else that, that Saul, Paul writes he writes it in, in, in 2 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Five times in these, uh, what I call the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles, the letters to Timothy and Titus. Paul gives us these trustworthy sayings. These sort of memorable little sayings that people can hold on to. This one, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And even as he says it, what happens to Paul, Saul, he says, he came into the world to save me. He looks back to this event on the road to Damascus. He says, I was a sinner. In fact, he says, I'm the worst. You see, that's the thing about sin. We see other people's sin far more quickly than we do our own. We're so aware when other people mess up. But we see our own sin far more deeply than anybody else sees. I might be slower to see my sin than I am yours. But I know, and Paul knew, saw knew, the depth of his own sin. I can see what you do, but I can't often see why you do it. But I see me. I see the coldness in my own heart towards God. I see the depth of my rejection of God still. I see the apathy. That I have towards God, and often only what other people see is is the good stuff. I think that's true for Saul when he read it and wrote it. I think it's true for me. I think it's probably true for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But 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 why? Why was Saul saved? Well, he says as he reflects on that, that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. You see, this story of change, how Saul goes from this persecutor of this church, this religious good man, this religious zealot, to the missionary church planting Writer of, a, of the Bible. That change on that road to Damascus happens so that people might look and say, not Paul is great, but that Jesus is great. The key character on that road to Damascus is Jesus. That people might see in Saul's change... That Jesus can and will save anybody. That Jesus has such unbelievable patience. He has unbelievable patience for the person that says, I'm doing things my own way. For the rebel. The one who says, I, I'm rejecting God, I'm rejecting his rules, I'm doing things my way. And God has patience. God is good. But God also has patience for the, for the person who says, I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to turn up to church week by week. I'm going to live a good life. God has unbelievable patience with that person that would say to the world with their actions, I don't need Jesus even as they sing that they do. Because again, that's one of the dangers of growing up in the church. That we've got all the outward response nailed down. We can sing the right songs. We can go through the right disciplines. We can be at the right places. Our lives can look pretty moral. But in our hearts, we're actually saying, I don't need Jesus. I don't need to be saved. Paul's the most religious man in the world. And yet, his change shows not his goodness, but God's goodness. The patience, the divine, wonderful, long-suffering patience, immense patience of Jesus. Because I think if it was us, We'd have given up on Saul long before this. And God knows far more than we do. We'd have maybe cut the cord on Saul the minute he went and viewed and enjoyed the killing of that man, Steve. And yet, God in his wisdom shows through saving Saul how kind, how loving, how patient he is. Every story of change, every conversion, every point, moment, person who is saved by Jesus is saved so that the world might say, how good is God? And if we're Christians here, failing though we are, cold-hearted though we may be, we can close our time together by saying, isn't God good? That we are utter ups. And we are. God is good. God is great. That he might save somebody like Saul, that he might save somebody like me. Because if God can save Saul... And if God can save me, God can save you. And he'll show himself to be great and glorious. Even as he calls you to serve him and to suffer for him, he will show himself to be good, though it might seem like madness to us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together to close our time out.